So Venerable Children is still traveling in Asia, so tonight we'll, continuing, we'll continue the review on uh, Approaching the Buddhist Path, the first book in the series. But let's first begin with our motivation. And so we really have such a precious opportunity to, pra- to, to practice the Dharma in this human form. Because of our deep ignorance regarding reality, we keep looking outwardly for our happiness and peace of mind. Gaining some precision about what the mind is and understanding the mind's potential will really uh, support us on our progress on the path to full awakening so that we can benefit all beings. And understanding the mind is so helpful and important because mm, that's what gives us our misery. It also can give us our happiness. And so by looking at uh, what goes on in the mind, we can start figuring out what to abandon and what to adopt so that we can find some peace of mind and then with that space of peace and mind we can then start developing our other good qualities of love and compassion generosity ethics so may we take to heart uh, the measure of our full potential in this life and strive for full Buddhahood for the benefit of all and so tonight can be another step in that process uh, on our path to awakening. So tonight... Um, We'll begin reviewing the first few pages of chapter two in the Buddhist view of, which is called the Buddhist view of life. And we'll begin by exploring um, the Buddhist worldview by investigating the nature of mind. And so I uh, did a little bit of looking to find uh, a little bit about the Western approach to mind. And, um, it really understands it in terms of material phenomena. And the common philosophy of mind is described within what's called emergent materialism. And emergent materialism asserts that when matter is organized in the appropriate way, for example, in the way that uh, living human bodies are organized, Mental properties emerge in a way not fully accountable for by physical laws. These emergent properties have an independent ontological status and cannot be reduced to or explained in terms of the physical substrate from which they emerge. Yeah. (laughs) Hum? So, yeah, they don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, this really tells us nothing about the mind or consciousness or experience. Hmm? 
So they really lack a cohesive concept of mind. It's nature, causes, and potential. And um, there's some fellow named, uh, what was his name? David Chalmers, who kind of got this going again um, in recent years, but it was suggested in the 19th century by William James. So it's been around a long time, and I don't think it's been um, flushed out or (laughs) examined since then. Mm. So anyhow, that view is very uh, contrasted with Buddhism, which has a uh, 2,600-year history of investigating the mind And uh, the Buddhist teaching uh, can be considered a science of mind. And that's because they provide a complete study of the mind, setting forth specific means for observing it, delineating the various types of consciousness and mental factors, making known the mind's potential, and describing ways to transform the mind. So quite comprehensive. As it says in the book uh, that uh, His Holiness and Venerable Children uh, wrote, our mind determines our state of existence. Someone who has eradicated all afflictive obscurations, mental afflictions, and the karma causing rebirth in samsara is a liberated being, an arhat. And then someone whose mind has eliminated even the subtlest cognitive obscurations is a Buddha. And this is all determined by the extent to which that person's mind has been purified. A person's level of spiritual attainment does not depend on external features, but on his or her state of mind. So just all of that is um, kind of a lot to think about, but... So the, ma- the nature of mind, it's not material. It lacks the tangible quality of physical objects. And of course, mind and brain are related and affect each other um, when a person is alive. But the mind is distinct from the physical organ of the brain. The mind is what experiences. It is what makes an organism sentient. And we can see... Um, Clearly, anybody that has been uh, with a person that is dying and what that feels like when there is sentience there, when they are alive, and then when they die, it is so clear that something is gone, you know, so clear. Um, So in Buddhism, mind is defined as merely clarity and cognizance. Or sometimes they use the word awareness. Clarity indicates the mind is not material, and when it meets certain conditions, it's able to reflect objects. And due to its quality of cognizance, it can engage with or cognize that object. So let's start by jumping right into a little meditation here about the nature of mind so that we can get a little feel of what that's like. So first, settle the body in a comfortable position. And so we put our right hand in our left with our thumbs touching um, up close to our belly. Then 
You can release any tension as you do a brief body scan. So you can go from the feet on up to the head. And just notice if there's any tightness or tension anywhere and just let it go. Just let the body relax now. And that's important because tension in the body causes tension in the mind. So again, the word mind does not refer to the brain. The brain is made of atoms and the mind is not. The mind is that part of us that experiences, feels, perceives, thinks. The clarity of the mind, it's formless and objects arise in it. The mind is neutral. It reflects anything without censor. It's like an immaterial mirror. Then cognizance or awareness, it just can engage with objects. So let's start by calming our mind by observing the breath. We'll focus on the ebb and flow of the breath, either at the rise and fall of the belly, or the movement of air above the upper lip at the nostrils. So pick one and stay with it. And now, 
Focus on that which watches the breath, the awareness, that which is aware of the breath. Keep the mind steady on that space. When a distraction comes, instead of looking at the story the distraction tells you, look at what is a thought, what is its essence, what it is made of, what kind of energy is this?
So when we start looking at the nature of the mind, there's often so much content being reflected on the mirror of the mind, so much coming in that we almost get hypnotized by it, very distracted with it. But even while we have these thoughts, the mirror is always there, all reflected by the mind. And we can look at the distractions as mind too. If you look at the essence of thoughts, you can zoom into the thought and you can find the mind, the awareness. So distraction is really not a problem. It's how you look at the distraction. So were people able to look at the mind instead of the object? Could you feel the switch when you did that? Yeah. Yeah. So I thought tonight to bring in a little content from uh, His Holiness's uh, teachings on Mahamudra, uh, specifically uh, the importance of deeply understanding the definition of mind. Because Mahamudra is the practice of meditating on the conventional nature of the mind, the clarity and cognizance. So the examination of what the mind is is very thorough. And so... To do this, we'll just delve into the uh, to each word of the definition of mind, so uh, merely clarity and cognizance. And I think this is so important because the mind is the key to our happiness, and more importantly, to our enlightenment. Um, that's where all the work is. Um, so to be really clear about where the work takes place is really important. I don't know about you, but I keep getting lost to things outside of my mind. Um, And so really understanding the mind helps one mm, keep that focus, I think, and not get so pulled away from it. Um, And also mm, understanding the mind in a little more clearer way opens up the vast potential of the mind, I think, in a, in a, in a deeper way. At least it, d- it has done that for me. <clears throat> so we'll talk a bit about um, language. Um, so in Western languages, we differen- differentiate uh, between mind and heart and intellect and feelings. We think of the intellectual, rational side as mind, and the emotional, intuitive side as heart, something quite different from mind. Now, in Buddhism, there's not such a large gap between intellect and emotions. The functions of both are included in one word. In Sanskrit, it's chitta, and uh, in Tibetan, it's sem, S-E-M. And it includes all sense perceptions, such as seeing, hearing, smelling, and so on. A close synonym for chido or sim could be experience, but it's not quite precise enough. Because in our culture, we don't feel like we have experienced something deeply unless we have been consciously moved by it on an emotional level. And that's not what we're describing here. In the Buddhist context, experience is merely whatever happens to us, whatever occurs. So we're not talking about some 
sort of thing or organ that is in our head, like the brain, nor are we talking about a space. Like when we say, imagine your mind this or that, as if the mind were a stage or room in our head where thoughts parade and where the memories are stored. Uh, it feels that way. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so what is happening when we see, hear, or think something? something? So we could describe it biochemically or electrochemically, but we also can describe describe it subjectively. And the subjective experience is what is meant by mind in Buddhism. When we see, hear, think, or emotionally feel something, there is an experience from moment to moment. Buddha taught the non-duality of that which has an object and its object. It's usually translated as the non-duality of subject and object. Experience always has contents. We cannot have an experience without experiencing something. A thought does not exist without a thinking of the thought. And no one can think without thinking a thought. So non-dual then means that in any moment, these two things, mind and its object, or experience and its contents, always come together as one entity. There cannot be one without the other. Therefore, in Buddhism, mind mind always refers to experience and the contents of experience. So if we first talk about clarity a bit, the arising of the contents of an experience. So the word clarity should be taken as a verbal noun with an object, not as a quantitative noun referring to something that can be measured. Clarity is not some sort of light in our head that has varying intensity. It is the action or occurrence of the action, of being clear about something or making something clear. And making something clear doesn't imply a conscious act of will. It merely happens. Clarity in Tibetan would be similar to arising. Being clear about something or making something clear or the event of making something arise. Although again, with no implication of passivity or lack of responsibility on the one hand or of conscious will on the other. So what occurs when we experience something? There is the giving rise to something. Mind gives rise to something. Mind is not an entity or a thing, so there is nothing that is actually an agent giving rise to anything. The word mind is simply a term mentally labeled onto the occurrence of the subjective event of the giving rise to something. So when we experience something, mind gives rise to a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a tactile or bodily sensation, a thought, a feeling, an emotion, or a dream. Even when we are asleep with no dreams, mind gives rise to darkness. In deep sleep with no dreams, it is still an experience. We cannot say that when we are asleep with no dreams, we do not have a mind anymore. (laughs) or that the mind is no longer functioning. If the mind were turned off during sleep, how could it ever perceive the sound of the alarm clock so that we could turn it back on again? Mm -hmm. So the experience of deep sleep entails the mind giving rise to darkness 
and engaging with it in the manner of being absorbed with only minimal attention to sensory perception. So subjectively, there is always the arising of something. What arises doesn't have to appear directly. For example, when we hear that an overweight man does not eat during the day, we know he must eat at night because he is overweight. And there's a shortcoming of using the word clarity because clarity implies that what is clear is in focus if it is visual or understood if it's conceptual. But this is not necessarily the case either. When we take off our glasses and look at someone, our mind gives rise to a blur. And we do not understand what someone says. It gives rise to confusion. In both cases, something is still arising. So just by thinking of it this way, it, doesn't it just open the mind more to the, the vastness and the potential of the mind? You know, it's not so mm, prescribed by the terms so much. Um, so the second quality of mind, cognizance and awareness, or awareness, again, like clarity, the word cognizance is a verbal noun with an, with an object, not a quantitative one. So it is an engaging with the contents of an experience. It is being aware of something or making something an object of awareness, but not necessarily as a conscious act of will. The Tibetan term is explained as an, as an engaging with or relating to an object. Unlike the English words of engagement or relation, however, Tibetan carries no connotation of an emotional bond. Being detached about something is also a form of engagement with it or a way of relating to it. The Tibetan word translated as engagement or relation literally means an entering into something. It connotes doing something cognitive with an object. It can be, for example, seeing, hearing, thinking, or feeling it. And this is what hap is happening when we, are, when we experience something. There is an arising of something and an engaging with it in a cognitive way. There is the arising of a sight and the seeing of it. The arising of a thought and the thinking of it. We could say the mind gives rise to something and apprehends it. It's another way of talking about it. So in English, cognit uh, cognizance or awareness implies we understand something and are conscious of it, but that also isn't necessarily the case. Not understanding something is just, a mu just as much a form of engaging with an object as, in an, as is understanding it. Whether we are conscious or unconscious of something, we can still experience it. So for instance, we could be talking to someone with unconscious hostility. Even though our hostility is unconscious, it still exists. We experience it, and it produces an effect. So the, Buddhist sco the scope of the Buddhist concept of cognizance or awareness is much larger than that of the equivalent English word.
In every moment, then, there's an arising and a cognitive engagement with something. These two do not occur one after another. It is not the, not the case that first a thought arises and then we think it. And the process is not of two events happening consecutively, but of two functions occurring simultaneously. Mind gives rise to a thought and thinks it simultaneously. And this is going on for each moment of every being with a mind. Now when we say mind is mere clarity and cognizance, the merely sets the basic minimum that needs to occur for there to be an experience. Mind needs merely to give rise to something and cognitively engage with it in some manner. So merely excludes the need for there to be any significant strength of attentiveness to the contents of an experience. It also excludes the need for there to be any significant level of understanding, emotion, or evaluation. An experience is simply a cognitive event. The word merely also excludes there being a solid, concrete me or mind inside our head that is experiencing or controlling experience as its agent. It excludes a solid, concrete object as the content out there that is being experienced. And it excludes a solid, concrete experience that is occurring between the two. Cognitive events merely occur. Conventionally, of course, we can say I'm having this, the experience of this or that, and subjectively it appears like that. But none of the items involved can exist in, independent of each other. So the three spheres involved in an experience, a subject, either person or mind, a content and an experience itself are all empty of existing independently. Merely does not deny that experience actually occurs and, it, and, it, and it's always individual. So we don't exclude too much or too little when we use the term merely. The continuity of experience is known as the mind stream or mental continuum. It's always individual, with each moment of experience following from previous moments of experience according to the karmic laws of cause and effect. If I experience eating a meal, I and not you will, will next experience the physical sensation of feeling full. So Buddhism does not posit a universal or a collective mind. Because the mind is influenced by other factors and changes in each moment, when the appropriate conditions are present, mental transformation occurs. A mind that is flooded with disturbing emotions can become one that is peaceful and joyful. So getting a sense of the flexibility and the vastness of the mind begins to help us to see this big potential of mind. That's where everything uh, happens that has anything to do with transformation for us. We can also investigate the mind in terms of being beginningless. So let's do a brief meditation on the continuity of mind. 
So again, settle the body in a comfortable position, the hands in the lap, the right hand on the left, thumbs touching. Again, do a brief body scan, relax the body. Eyes lowered. Or closed, whatever you prefer. And now let's check the continuity of our mind by following it back in time from the present to as far as your memory will allow you. Having memory itself is a proof of the continuity of the mind. And as you follow the natural flow of your memories back in time, you'll come across both joyful and miserable experiences can recognize them, and also how you felt at the time, but then carry on back in time without indulging in any one of your recollections.
Now when your memory starts to fade, use your imagination and reconstruct what it must have been like being an infant. And now what it must have been like being a fetus in mother's womb, as well as at the time of conception. What happened then? The sperm and the egg from the mother and the father met and united. And this is the start of our body. But what about the mind? Think about the mere fact that mind is an impermanent phenomena and thus must be preceded by a cause of a similar nature. Matter cannot produce mind. When you bring back your memory of the mind to the point of birth, 
there are only three choices from where the mind could arise. Either the mind comes from the parents' minds, which is not possible, since one cannot receive a piece of someone else's mind. Or it pops into existence without a cause, which is also not possible, since an impermanent phenomena has to have a previous cause. Therefore, a mind arises out of its own previous continuity in accordance with the law of cause and effect. So what was that meditation like for folks? not sure I can answer the question what it was like, but um, what it does do is it always, um, I mean, whenever I do this meditation, it always leads to this unequivocal, it's like this, there's no, there's no other solution that seems so, um, yeah, it just leads to the fact that there, there can't be any other mm. possibility mm. because clearly, clearly, clearly one moment of mind follows the other. That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I was surprised that my memories are very fragmented. But mm. what I could recall is it was almost as if me now was back then experiencing it like that same solid sense of me Mm -hmm. was present in all of those Mm -hmm. experiences Mm -hmm. um so i was wondering am i projecting from now or did it really feel the same back then you know this solid sense of me 
Um, I'll have to look at that more. Yeah, probably some of both would be my guess. I don't know. And then uh, as an infant, it was just pure selfishness. Like, <laughs> I want pleasure. I don't want pain. Give it to me now, mom yeah. or whoever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, wow, that's some um, kind of like the root of our, or not the root, but our essence, um, the self-grasping mind that just carries on it. And its very first experiences are this craving for pleasure, security, mm. comfort, and those kinds of things. Yeah. I have that experience too, Christina, about, uh, you know, always me. And sometimes I, I just puzzle, like, so you die and you're in the bardo and you're still me. And you're me and me. And, I mean, I'm looking at my body now and my body at the age of two or 15 or 25, there was still just me. And I don't feel really any different at the me level. Mm -hmm. It's still me, mm. right? Mm. So you die, go to the bardo, you're reborn as a cockroach. The cockroach is still thinking me, 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 me in whatever cockroach language. So this, uh, this, this meanness, you know, going from life to life and moment to moment. Mm. It, mm. Uh, I don't know. That's what I identify mm. as part of is the depth of our ignorance. But I think, though, as we go through the uh, stages of death and the mind gets subtler and subtler and we lose such a... Mm, we lose such a container that is so... Here I am. You know, we lose that. And that opens up. And then we just have the mind, you know. And that's why focusing and doing meditation on the mind is so helpful because, you know, as we do these meditations, it seems like the mind is in here because all of our senses are kind of right here, most of them, you know. And so it's like right behind the eyes, you know. But that isn't the mind. The mind has no its space. It has no container, and so as we keep looking at the mind more and more, we can break through this, these barriers that affect then how we think and feel and act and, you know. So I think um, and that's kind of connected to when we die, how we lose the container um, in many ways. And I think it opens things up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and the grasping for me, yeah. Yeah, uh -huh. Christina. Mm -hmm. Someone said that um, that meditation makes me very aware that my actions now are creating my future experience. Mm -hmm. Someone else said it reminded me that my mind doesn't have to stay stuck in an affliction. I got a sense that the mind can be much more expansive than the narrow way it has been functioning. Yes. Yeah, that's the key right there. Yeah. Yeah. That we have choice. That because how the mind functions, we have choice. Yeah, because of its two uh, aspects, we have choice. We can, we can move it. We can turn it. Yeah, and it's a matter of just practicing that and figuring out the methods and not getting. Mm, um, hypnotized, really. I like how he wrote that. Hypnotized by what the mind is thinking and getting stuck in the story 
and feeling like that's what it's always going to be, you know. So this is the conventional nature of mind, that it gives rise to things and apprehends them. The conventional nature, it's clarity and cognizance. It can be compared to pure water that is free from contaminants. This is the example they use often. And when dirt is mixed in this water, um, its pure nature is obscured, although the water is still there. And sometimes the dirt is stirred up and the water is more obscured than at other times, but no matter how much dirt is in the water, it is not the nature of water. Water can be purified and the dirt removed. And that's the same with the mind. It's pure even when it's obscured by all the afflictions. When our mind is totally out of control, the mind is still pure. The afflictions have not entered into the nature of the mind. Sometimes our mind is comparatively calm, and other times it is agitated by anger or attachment, and these afflictions are temporary. They have not entered the nature of the mind. Also, we can see how anger and loving-kindness are opposite, so we can't manifest in our mind both at the same time. Um, They can arise at different times, certainly, But the fact that the mind can be dominated um, by anger at one time and by an opposite emotion at another indicates that the emotions are not in the same nature as the mind. And it's really important to remember that. That really ties into our idea about our potential. When we start believing that things are just as we are experiencing them, and we don't have much choice, and, you know, here we go. Um, Our view gets so narrow, and we're not at all um, in accord with reality, at all in accord with reality. And that is such misery-making. That's misery-making. We all know what that that feels like, you know. It's just misery-making. And so the good news about the Buddha's teaching is that so many of what he taught was ways to start working with this clarity and cognizance so that we can transform how we think. Um, And it's not something that is immediate, certainly, but over time uh, we can see the transformation happen. And... We can see how we are less miserable. We have less afflicted states of mind. They don't stay as long. Is that true for most everybody in this room? Yeah, I see all these heads nodding. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no greater teacher of, you know, having conviction about something than experience, yeah? And so we all understand this because we've experienced it. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I get off track, why? It's because my mind has gone out again. The cause is something out there for my misery. The cause of my misery is never outside. It's always right in here. Always right in here. 
And at first, I didn't like that. You know, it's like, Ugh. but you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you know, now I love it because I have the choice. I have the choice. I can create a miserable day or a beautiful day. My choice. Now, I'm not perfect at it at all, of course. You know, I fall into my afflictions. But um, it doesn't grab me like it used to. Yeah. It doesn't grab I don't get lost like I used to. Yeah. So now let's look a little bit at the ultimate nature of mind, its actual mode of existence. So it is its emptiness of independent or inherent existence. Now, understanding that things appear one way and exist another is difficult. It takes a long time, at least it has for me, and is still, of course, something in process. At first, when I started hearing all of that, I couldn't even work with the words. It's like, okay, this is English, but what are you saying? You know, it took us such a long time. So we have to keep going over it again and again and again, keep studying, keep reading about it, keep meditating on it, and then slowly, slowly it comes. So inherent existence is a false mode of existence that we superimpose on all phenomena. We believe that they have their own findable essence that makes them what they are, that they exist independently of all other factors, such as their causes and parts, but in reality, they are empty of all such fabricated ways of existing because they exist dependent on other factors. And so this ignorance that we talk about, it's a mental factor that grasps phenomena as inherently existent with their own independent essences. And it is the source of all other disturbing emotions. Because ignorance and other mental afflictions are erroneous mental factors, they lack an inherently existent foundation. They are not embedded in the nature of the mind, and they can be eliminated forever also. That's very good news. So I thought to finish up tonight to uh, read a little bit from Jeffrey Hopkins' book, uh, Empty, Emptiness Yoga, which... Um, he describes so clearly uh, how to work with this a little bit. So here's what he writes in one of the sections. All persons and phenomena appearing to our minds seem to exist inherently. Therefore, although these bases of emptiness are actually the conventionally existent person and other conventionally existent phenomena, we do not have knowledge of them as only conventionally existent. We see them with an overlay that prevents seeing them as they are. And then he gives this example, which is very helpful. Suppose from always wearing green-tinted glasses, so all you ever looked out of from birth on was green-tinted glasses, and so you saw a white building as green. If you knew merely from common knowledge that the building was white, without yourself knowing what white is, you could not say that you know that the color of the building is white. 
So we're in a similar situation with that. Although the right and wrong appearances of the subject are utterly mixed, realization of emptiness is not a matter of merely seeing the right appearance of the object. During explicit realization of emptiness by anyone except a Buddha, the object entirely disappears. This is because you are searching to determine whether the object inherently exists or not through examining where the object can withstand analysis. And finally, you cannot come up with anything to posit as the object. So you are left with a mere vacuity or emptiness that is the absence of the object's inherent existence. And you remain in meditative equipoise as vividly and as long as you can without losing the force of the non-finding of the object under ultimate analysis. Then, after dwelling as long as you can is in this vacuity or emptiness of inherent existence, it is helpful when loosening from meditative equipoise to watch the reappearance of the object as qualified by an absence of inherent existence. Following me? Yeah? That's so interesting. Here's an example. So when meditating on the final nature of a house, for instance, you search to see whether or not you can find an inherently existent one, such as now appears, like this one. By taking as your reason that the house is a dependent arising, and eventually understand that an inherently existent house cannot be found cannot be found under such analysis, at that point, appearance of the object, the house, vanishes. A conventionally existent house does not appear when its emptiness is realized. Although there is nothing at all to be found and the object has completely disappeared, you have not fallen to an extreme of annihilation because you are within ultimate analysis. For since a house only conventionally exists, if it were to appear upon ultimate analysis, it would have to be inherently existent. So when the object has disappeared, and nothing appears but an utter vacuity or emptiness, it is important to keep remembering that this vacuity or emptiness is not a vacuity or emptiness of nothingness, but is just the absence of a solidly or concretely existent house covering its parts, that such a house as presently appears to our mind does not exist. When a meditator has become used to this type of reasoned investigation, the strong adherence to the false appearance of inherent existence lessens. This in turn causes a change in the appearance of the object. 
You can only accomplish this through trying to find an inherently existent object, discovering that it cannot be found, and then, within knowledge it cannot be found, again looking at the object. Interesting, huh? So let's try this a little bit with another little meditation. (laughs) So pick an object in the room. Pick something to look at, like the lamp or the clock or whatever. Now close your eyes and consider it coming into being in dependence upon specific causes. The parts, the people who made it, how it got into the room, all those different causes. Now see if this dependence conflicts with the objects appearing as if it exists in its own right, separate, independent. So now try to find this separate, independent, inherently existent-looking object. Now, since you cannot find the inherently existent object, 
due to the dependence on other causes, rest in that vacuity, that emptiness of not finding a solidly concrete existing, existing object. So that object disappeared into space-like emptiness. Now slowly open your eyes and look at the object. Any comments on that one? Um, so I started with thinking about the causes that led to the gong. Mm-hmm. And it was hard for me to, to see how just because something was caused, it didn't have inherent existence like right now. So that didn't work so well. And then I thought about conditions and that was a little bit, better in that I know the gong exists because we're not in the middle of like a nuclear bomb detonating that wouldn't allow for any kind of matter to exist how it currently does. So it's dependent on conditions. 
you know, we're not in the middle of a searing blaze. Things can exist mm. how they do now. Mm. That's a condition, right? Current condition. You look very puzzled. Mm. You're not, yeah, I, I wouldn't think of it that way, but that's okay. Go ahead. And then I thought about the one that really seemed to work was um, its parts. So it's made out of metal. Yeah. yeah. Some kind of metal. So if you take away the metal, where is the gong? Mm. It's not there. Mm. So then I really got a sense of that like disappearance effect because mm. Mm. It, it can't stand up on its own mm. if mm. this key element is taken away. Mm-hmm. Mm. But then when I open my eyes again, it's just, it's obviously there. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a little bit frightening or not frightening, but like disorienting. Like mm. what's going on? Mm. Like what are the possibilities here? Wow. Yeah. They say that when you do this meditation that um, you really have to get a feeling for um, the dependence of something. You really have to delve into. So maybe something that had more parts might be a little easier, you know, like the lamp or something. And to really, you know, like Venerable has taught many times, lay it all out and then, you know, is it the lamp and, you know, put it together and, you know, really, really get a sense of the dependence on all of those. And then, you know, where is the lamp? Cannot find the lamp. It's not in the thing that I turn. It's not in the glass. It's not in the pole. It's not, and so keep doing that and really get a feel for that. And then you can't find you can't find the lamp. So then you know mm, that's what disappears. You can't find this inherently, or you can't find yes, this inherently existent lamp. It's not there, yeah. So then that's, the, that's what dissolves, yeah. And I think, you know, we just have to keep doing this a bazillion times and then a few more. But just to play with it, I think, yeah. I, I did a slight variation uh, with this meditation. It's one that I often do when I go up to pet my tree, and I think... She's not her nose, she's Mm. not her ears, she's Mm. not her tail, she's Mm. not her fur, Mm. she's not her kitty consciousness. And so in eliminating all that, then it does bring a sense of spaciousness. But to add the part about closing your eyes and doing that, and then opening your eyes and looking at the object, added a whole new element. So Mm. I'm Mm -hmm. looking forward to doing that one some more. Mm -hmm. I did a similar one with the cat that was right in front of me. Um, I did it because I have an attachment to cats because I miss my cat at home. And I was a little bit disturbed by this because I was, you know, taking apart the cat, the cat hair, you know, as Venerable said. And then I got to the inside of the cats and it was all kind of laid out in in my mind. And it was actually very disturbing. And then Mm -hmm. I opened my eyes and I was like, oh, this cat I thought was so cute is actually kind of revolting. I was going to go up and pet them after the teachings, and now I'm not sure about that. <laughs> so I'm not entirely sure if I was doing it right. But I didn't find the cat that I thought was so so cute. Mm. Inherently cute cat. Yeah, yeah. 
Maybe it's inherently revolting. I've got to work through that, but yeah, maybe it's neither. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just cat. Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. So maybe a little grist for the mill. I may not have an answer. <laughs> so I believe in the first part of your talk, you said that mind is the subjective experience mm-hmm. and the contents of our experience. Mm-hmm. So to me, that seems like it's a collection of parts, um, subject, object, and experience, sort of. Would you say that's the case? Say that question again. So is mind like um, a collection of parts? The subject, the object, and... Mind is... Clarity and cognizance. You have to keep coming back to that. So it reflects. It's like a mirror, an immaterial, not a material, immaterial mirror. Mm -hmm. It just reflects. So I guess, if is that what you're thinking about, then this comes, this comes, this comes, like that? No, like saying it's a subjective experience. I think subjective just means that it's just mine, you know, and yours is just yours in that way. Mm-hmm. I, think I guess the experience part hmm? is what I'm actually. I'm more interested in the experience, in the experience part. So, part. Um, so you know, it cognizes it. It meets with whatever is reflected, and uh, it can it can know it. Just that, mm-hmm. but and. It, we can know it in, you know, and we are learning about that now. We can know it in many different ways. We can know it erroneously. We can know it directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if if the object depends on the observer, their observation, how can we say it merely reflects it as if the object existed in, independently of the mind? Say that again. If we say that the mind merely reflects objects. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of makes, at least to me, it makes it sound like the object exists independently of the mind. The that the, the mind has no other relationship to the object, but merely to reflect it. Uh-huh. However, I believe they are dependent. Yeah. So. Yeah, they are dependent. Yeah, it's not, I think the merely part is trying to get us to not see things so solidly. Yeah, so to to relate to the mind in a more fluid way. You know, our senses are so uh, overpowering, and we run all day on what's coming in, and. We're missing out on the subtlety of just the mind's clarity and cognizance, you know. So um, I think merely kind of helps us get away from just reacting to everything, you know. Mm-hmm. That's my limited understanding. Mm-hmm. You can ask somebody that has more understanding. Yeah. <laughs>